You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Tuesday, October 27, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Tony Greer. But first, with the day's stories, Jack Farley. Thanks, Ash. U.S. equities had a mixed day, while European stocks encountered another day of pain, as on the European continent, daily cases swelled to well beyond March and April. The fate of the U.S. remains in the balance. Bitcoin surged today, up 5% of the day and almost 30% since the start of October. In other news, the U.S. 10-year yield backed off from its recent upsurge, yet the yield curve has steepened since beginning of October. The credit markets continue to give off a pleasant smell. U.S. investment-grade yields have reached the lows of February and March, as have high yield. Same with the market for bond insurance via credit default swaps. Analysts are estimating that these low spreads means tens of billions in savings for corporates across the credit spectrum. Bankruptcies themselves have slowed down. Over the past week, there were just two, the lowest number since mid-June. But the more you zoom in on the credit landscape, the more you see the tensions swirling beneath. Lenders to bankrupt entities are competing with one another, vying for the morsels of the fallen companies. In the case of JCPenney, various creditors are accusing each other of, quote, lender-on-lender violence, with one lender even calling the actions of a competitor, quote, economic terrorism. Creditors are also playing rough with owners of malls, whose delinquent loans they are now beginning to foreclose on. A series of delinquent loans to the iconic Saks Fifth Avenue, consisting of a total of $846 million, has not been paid since April, and its creditors are now cracking down and pushing towards foreclosure, meaning they could seize the many properties that are collateral in the loan if the owners don't repay. So lenders are cracking down on the mall owners, who are in turn directing the stress onto their tenants by suing them. In other words, it's getting pretty ugly. But while malls are encountering this retail apocalypse turned bankruptcy Armageddon, the market for residential properties is remarkably strong. It's red hot. We already saw that last week when existing home sales rose to a 14-year high. Today, we again saw continued strength as the S&P Case-Shiller Index rose 5.2% year-over-year, not only beating the average estimate of 4.2%, but also being the biggest annual gain since August 2018. So while the residential real estate market continues to be on fire, the commercial market, particularly malls, fights for its survival. Yet another example of the K-shape bifurcated recovery. And with that, let's go back to Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. TG, Ron Unfiltered. Welcome back, man. It's great to be here, Ash. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to have you. Let's dive right in. Um, you know, you're back first time in about uh, two weeks. Good to have you. Let's do a quick recap of where we are, what's happened this week. Set the set the basic landscape of how you're thinking about what's going on. Yeah, we've seen so far in the week, we've seen some pretty good equity selling. We've seen a pullback from um, the 3,400 level in the S&P. Uh, you know, we saw 
pretty bad optics coming in to start the week, actually, Ash. We had uh, different stages of lockdown in Europe. You know, we have the American media using coronavirus as a weapon around here and really amping up the hysteria around it heading into the election. Um, the stimulus chances before the election essentially dropped to zero on Monday. And I think that that's something that the market dramatically rejected, seeing that that carrot um, that Trump and Mnuchin and Pelosi had been dangling really isn't there. It's going to be pushed back till after the election. So up against the old highs in the S&P or the last place we peaked out, let's call it, you know, the market's taking a pause here. And um, that's basically, I think, what's driving things or at least to set the tone for the week. Yeah. So talking of data, the topic I hate to talk about, but nobody can avoid election data. What are you seeing coming in? Yeah, you know, it, you know, it's the same poll skew with Biden leading by a little bit in the polls. Um, J.P. Morgan made a really relevant call to me, Ash. You know, it was interesting to see them and a lot of other sell side firms publish their research about what the blue wave is going to mean and about what the Biden victory is going to mean. You know, they've got to publish research that's in line with the polls, and then they've got to come out with things that actually make them sound smart. And they, J.P. Morgan came out with a call that said they see a tightening race which you know kind of makes you sit up in your chair as as a form of reality that you also see so you want to see what they're seeing in the markets and they think that an orderly trump win which is what my personal corporate prediction is um is most favorable for equities right so they put an s p target of 3900 on um up 14 percent in the case of a trump victory they said energy stocks would benefit and that in case of a Biden victory, that there might be an exodus from U.S. stocks with taxes obviously going much higher and potentially our platform starting to change quite a bit. And so there might be a rotation out of the U.S. into Europe. And so that's something to look out for on both sides. But I appreciate that they, I appreciate that they came out with a trading scenario that was about, you know, an orderly retention of power by President Trump an election that is not highly contested or necessarily, you know, maybe necessarily fought over if we can help it as a nation. Um, and that would mean smooth sailing for the S&P. Unfortunately, the optics didn't agree with that call. So we kind of walked into a buzzsaw on Monday while they made that call. Um, but I'm still pretty confident in the rally. You know, I, I'm saying stocks are going to be volatile into the election. But yesterday's pullback was not one with major macro tailwinds behind it, right? Ash, like there were no major FX moves. Bonds were not breaking, uh, yields were not breaking into a new range, rather pulling back within the range that they've been in. You know, so I don't really get crazy about a pullback in equities, especially when I feel like we've got the catalyst for one. Um, you know, on a day like yesterday, you know, it was interesting. Uh, it was interesting to see how it shaked out and shook into today as a little bit more of a lockdown type of rotation. Yeah, you know, energy got whacked yesterday. Oil catching a bit of a bid today. What's your take there? Yeah, energy is. Uh, you know, I've been fighting. I've been fighting everybody that thinks that it's going to go very far from here. Is what I think. You know, I think oil is kind of comfortable around these prices. Um, spreads seem comfortable around these prices just on the south side of sort of um, 
in contango rather sort of in the, in the negative side below zero where they're not backwardated they're in contango very slightly uh we're seeing you know upticks in demand uh all over different parts from china we've got a couple of down ticks in a few different countries in demand category but oil market seems pretty well balanced around here the big oil trade to me is in oil stocks as we know the baby is getting thrown out with the bath water in xle um, it's one of the smallest percentages it's been of the S&P. It is getting literally bombarded with bad headlines on a daily basis and holding its ground. So I'm going to, you know, on the lookout for big picture wise for the energy markets to potentially rally from here. And that's my posture on it right now. Um, range bound in the commodity with a very close bullish eye on the energy equities. Yeah. You point out yesterday FX asleep during the move and uh, during the moves. Yeah, there, there was no big move in emerging markets, even, you know, the Turkish lira, which has been coming apart at the seams. It wasn't even a big day in the lira. You know, um, the euro has been range bound. The dollar has been range bound the way I see it yesterday. It looked like a reaction in the volatility markets. Quite honestly, there was a big pop in the VIX. The VIX rallied sharply above the 200 day moving average right with that equity move. So there are two scenarios that come to mind. We had a lot of dealers selling a lot of volatility to the clients in the equity market over the last several months. Maybe one of the dealers came into the market and covered a big chunk of their short volatility position ahead of the election. That's one scenario. Another scenario is if somebody with a potentially really long equity book decided to put a very big hedge on to get them through the next several weeks. And that would be something that makes sense and could have shaken up the market the same way. But I think that we're still coming out of it with the market generally long volatility, looking for more volatility than we're actually going to get into next Tuesday and maybe into the end of next week. So that's the way I'm looking at it. All right, Tony, let's take a look at a trade with a little bit of lead in it. What's happening in Bitcoin in your view? Yeah, Bitcoin's interesting, Ash. You know, that PayPal story is real. You know, the PayPal essentially, they feel like it's, from this angle, it looks like PayPal is essentially opening up a Bitcoin broker dealer that is going to be right on your platform if you have PayPal. And, you know, that's sort of um, that's sort of a great way for Bitcoin to buy into PayPal's distribution network. Um, I'm certainly not shocked that the stock that the stock that the currency is rallying on that. You know, we're at 13.5, I believe, and counting. The chart looks great. Um, I'm rooting for all the hodlers out there. And, you know, it's just interesting to see how Bitcoining is finding a seat at the macro table, which is something that, you know, we'd be more than welcoming for it to do. Another good indicator or contraindicator to, you know, market performances that you're looking for, that would not be a bad scenario, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think this is a potentially big on-ramp. I've talked about this on the crypto platform, but for people who aren't following it and who are just looking at a general overview, look, I think that uh, this could be a potential on-ramp uh, for its, I mean, look, you're talking about 350 million some odd users uh, of, of PayPal. That's pretty extraordinary. I mean, I was saying, uh, you know, my, my, my mom isn't trading crypto derivatives, but she has a PayPal account. That's it, right? I mean, I've had a PayPal account forever and I don't use it much, but I'm certainly going to take an, uh, a look at the cryptocurrency front end that shows up when I log in next time and see if maybe that's a more convenient place to house my Bitcoin risk rather than Coinbase, right? Why not Why not consolidate if I can and just be long the, the very small, um, I, I call it sort of blackjack bet on Bitcoin 
I'd rather watch that in my PayPal account and get rid of a Coinbase account, right? If you talk about the practicality of managing that and watching it. So, you know, and, and as you know, I mean, I'm not even going to take up much airtime. Raul, Raul Pal just put one of the best cases for Bitcoin right on our platform a couple of days ago, I believe it was. And if you haven't seen that yet, I'm speaking to other viewers, obviously. Make sure you don't miss it because that was one of the coolest things I've seen on Bitcoin in a while. Yeah, that was one hell of a case. I mean, basically, and, and there are a lot of nuances, but if you, if you had to sum it up in a single sentence, Raul's view is basically this is the first time in history that we've ever had uh, an asset that is simultaneously a call option on the future while being potentially a reserve asset. That's something that we've just never seen before. Yeah, absolutely. He's got the story nailed. He's got the pitch down pat and it very much lures me into the markets and at least keeps yeah. me focused on them so it's uh and, that that's yeah. where it is and by the way my one sentence summary doesn't do his uh view any justice it's very nuanced and very sophisticated do check it out if you have a moment but listen you know the other thing and i don't want to spend it all talking about bitcoin because we uh, have so much to talk about in markets but for me you know the thing that's so interesting about paypal it's about making this transition from a digital gold use case from a store of value use case to a medium of exchange use case. That's what I think is so interesting about this. Look, you know, I hold a small position in Bitcoin. Uh, I don't control the private keys. I own it through an exchange traded product. But the idea that you can facilitate uh, commerce this way, that you'll be able to use Bitcoin to, to pay people to, you know, split a dinner. This is something that is really interesting to me. Uh, and uh, ultimately what that's going to do potentially is dramatically pull down costs and uh, eliminate the margin that gets sucked out. Uh, by money transmitters, banks, and the whole range of financial intermediaries, uh, top to bottom. Absolutely, I love the idea of you know next to zero transaction costs in Bitcoin. I love the idea that through PayPal they can now incentivize you in a number of different ways to to take a look at it at least or to use it. And so I think that that's why the price action is getting the uh, rave reviews that it's getting right now. So I'm not surprised that I'm rooting for that trade 100. That brings us to today. Yeah, man. Today's an interesting day as well, Ash. You know, yesterday we got economic data um, in the housing sector that missed expectations, right? And we had bonds start rallying yesterday with yields backing off. Today we had durable goods orders come out and beat pretty handily with 1.9% positive versus 0.5% expectations. And we had the bond market continuing to rally with yields backing off even further. So that was kind of an interesting tell to me that both on good and bad economic data, the bottom market's adjusting back right away to lower rates. Um, I think the most interesting read through there is you can kind of make a call on which bond chart you want to believe in right now. If you look at the 30-year bond yields, it looks like yields are breaking out and have just pulled back to test that breakout level of support, and they can rate, excuse me, rise again. And if you look at the 10-year yield chart, yields have rallied right up toward 200 DMA resistance, 200-day moving average resistance, and backed off. So you can make a case on that chart that um, yields are still range back. Now, yeah. I've, got a I've got a close eye. I want to favor the breakout side. I want to favor the breakout and yield side because, to me, it seems to coincide with that Goldman Sachs call, which was bullish commodities based on inflationary forces, really, and also some deficits in those commodity markets. But I think it's interesting that, that as that call hit the tape and, you know, and then J.P. Morgan's presidential call hit the tape that we've got yields pulling back 
And, you know, the, the market's really kind of just rotating now on a sort of longer lockdown rotation again. So that that's what I'm seeing. You know, it's that same rotation where oil, oil everything oil, banks, transports and materials falls over and everything technology goes up by order of market cap. So we've got Fang rallying back and recovering yesterday's loss today. We've got social media rallying to a new high for the move, being driven by Twitter, which, by the way, to me, also speaks to a Trump rally. I mean, I, I couldn't picture Twitter rallying from 20 to 50 in the six months leading up into the election in a straight line if Joe Biden was going to be president. Because I, no matter what, but I think Trump's presence on Twitter dramatically decreases once he's out of the White House. So. You know, that's another interesting tell in the markets to me. The bond yield um, charts are two interesting tells to me. And now we're in this place where we're going into the middle of the week before next week's election. There's a little bit of pressure on the markets. We're getting a little bit of that volatility that equity traders have been expecting. And we're getting that old familiar lockdown rotation, but we're not getting any macro tailwinds behind the sell off. And in that, I would think the macro tailwinds causing a sell-off would be a continued and sustainable spike in volatility. Um, higher yields, I would say a stronger dollar would cause some volatility. And, you know, since we aren't seeing those macro tailwinds behind the sell-off, I'm going to keep playing this as a stiff upper lip bull market rotation right now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Let me call back to something you said earlier. What, what's accounting for that split across time horizons with Treasury yields? Well, the. That's a great question, Ash. What's going on is the yield curve is steepening just a little bit, and it's been volatile on the way. It hasn't been a linear path, but broadly speaking, um, break-evens and the yield curve are steepening, which means the market is predicting a little bit more inflation, a little bit more economic activity. And again, when we have these big COVID cases and the lockdowns in Europe, everything takes a pause. Um, but that's the sort of platform beneath the yield story. So what we've got is, as the curve steepens, you've got the yields on the 30-year, the long end breaking out, and the yields on the 10-year breaking out less so, which is what's steepening the curve. Um, but what's interesting is, like, you've got that, for a technical guy like me, you've got that, that dichotomy of one set of yields that looks like it's breaking out, heading higher, calling for a more endured bond sell-off. And then you've got the other chart, the 10-year yield, that says, nope, we're still range-bound. All that was was another test of resistance and back down. Now, we've been basing in yields for so long. And now that people are starting to talk about inflation, and I think that Goldman Sachs is probably going to drive some investment in inflationary trades, um, I got a feeling that yields are going to continue to see pressure on the top side of the range. And I want to keep an eye on the 30-year to see if that goes much higher. But what's interesting also is that we've got a really widespread between U.S. and European yields right now, as their yields haven't risen nearly as much as ours have, with their economy really lagging from the lockdowns. So it's a complicated story, but I think there's an interesting tell in there, and we've got to see which chart sort of pans out. 
Yeah. I mean, look, it's also interesting. You're looking at this uh, on a tick by tick basis some days. But when you look at that 30 year chart uh, across a 30 year time horizon, it's only going one direction. Yeah. Yields are falling. That, that's the story. Everything yields. Yields globally are going to converge at zero or lower at one point in time. You know, it's got kind of just a matter of when. But that path won't be linear either, Ash. And if we have finally, finally, with these recent enormous balance sheet additions, stoked actual inflation. I mean, you know, if you've listened to uh, a Grant Williams and Felix Zuloff podcast, Ash, you know, that was one that spun my head around counterclockwise because Felix Zuloff is no dummy. And when you listen to the handle that he's got on the macro world and its history, sort of the macro world and how we got here, you will be really, really compelled to listen to his view. And when he says that the Fed balance sheet could get somewhere like 40 to 50 trillion. I mean, I sit up in my chair because with the balance sheet at 7 trillion right now, I mean, that changes everything in the trading world dramatically, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, look, and just looking at that series, WALCL on uh, Fed Fred uh, St. Louis uh, Bank website, it, you know, look, it's, it's under a trillion dollars. Uh, and, you know, for the t duration of the holding, and then at two at two thousand eight, uh, it's it picks up. You hit around uh, you hit around uh, I guess I guess around two trillion at the end of the first round of QE QE one, and then it just keeps rolling up 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 uh, to just under uh, to just under five trillion, and now we're we're over a there, huge then inflection point in that curve uh, in uh, in in obviously at the beginning of the COVID crisis, rolling up to uh, over $7 trillion. These are huge numbers, not just huge numbers. The numbers are in macroeconomics are always huge, right? But it's the rate of change that is really sobering when you look at it. Uh, you know, but with all of that said, how do you think about the timing of that? Because look, you could have made the argument that look, this if you someone would have told you, for example, at the beginning of QE1, by the way, the Fed's balance sheet is going to seven trillion dollars. People would have dismissed them and said, "Oh, you're being paranoid. It's not going to seven trillion dollars. That's nuts." Right. But now that we're here, um, you look again at the ten-year chart. You look at the thirty-year chart. Down, down, down. So, how do we think about this? And and our feelings for the you know the strength and the health of the country. You have to hold them to the side for a minute to try and look at this in a neutral and objective way, just to understand what's happening to rates as the balance sheet increases. Yeah, it's a very complicated story, Ash. The, the balance sheet to me, the, you know, like you hit on, the rate of change is the most important thing. The hockey stick move from four to seven trillion is obviously what's got everybody playing into these inflationary stories because eventually global currency debasement is going to end up in an inflationary hard asset story. So until that starts to happen and still we start to see those trades actually pan out, we've got to be on the lookout for them. And we've got to sort of expect something different to happen because of that rate of change. And then once you know you start opening up the Overton window of what people can conceive on the balance sheet. And now, you know, Felix Zuloff did it for me when he says numbers like 40 to 50 trillion, you start saying, Wow, the financial world is going to look a lot different if that happens, you know, and what's going to be the trigger like you yeah. asked, like, how do you time it? You know, you, we don't really know, but you would imagine that, you know, this kind of addition is going to come after some kind of a dastardly bad economic number that crap out of people. Um, you know, maybe employment, maybe the employment improvements that we've been seeing since the bottom of the COVID lockdowns 
start falling again, you know, or the, or the employment picture gets worse again, uh, which is something I think we have to look out for, especially if the inflation story starts picking up and we start having costs rise, price input prices rise, and potentially wages not rise, then we're going to have a huge unemployment problem on our hands. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, you know, but I think that that would likely be the type of scenario where the Fed would have to come out at one of their meetings and say, OK, we're adding another leg to this emergency backstop funding or maybe something in the market would trigger it because that's really what's been happening. You know, maybe it's the S&P, um, you know, going for an unexpected 10 percent slide on the downside based on something that we don't know about. Call it a black swan for now. But, you know, if the market slides you can be sure that they're going to come out with something that's going to support it. So, you know, I would say that in terms of triggers, it's either going to be a market event or it's going to be, you know, really bad economic deterioration really fast. So we'll be on the lookout for both of those. But that's a good point, trying to figure out what the lever is going to be. Yeah. You know, listen, when I hear 40 to $50 trillion in the balance sheet, I have two reactions. The first is, no, that clearly must be wrong because it's impossible. And then the second reaction is, well, you know, where we are today if you look at it over a 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 year time horizon is also impossible. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. And I have one thought when I hear that number and that's no matter what, nobody owns enough gold, so. Yeah, and you also have to worry. I mean, the numbers like that make you genuinely fearful about the about the future of the country. Oh yeah, yeah, we are the definite um, Rubicon crossing, I think, if you can call it from that last move. I, I, that's what we've been saying. You know, when you take 11 years to build your balance sheet up from, you know, whatever it was, $600 billion when they started this operation to the $4 trillion over 11 years, and then one event, you go to $7 trillion, you know, now that that's something that eventually has got to shape the world, right? I mean, all of this is going to take time to pan out. And we'll see how it goes, but yeah. you can always navigate through it. And it requires growth. It, requi- it requires growth to be able to pay some of this down. Yeah, that's going to be difficult to trigger, but I think that we're on the right path coming out of the lockdowns. That's the only way we're going to generate it is come out of the lockdown. Yeah, Tony, I'm scaring myself. I think what I need to do is get together a panel of uh, some economists who look at debt and have them argue both sides of the case on Eurovision. Absolutely, man. Somebody more qualified than me, that would be great. Yeah, someone more qualified than me, too, for sure. So, Tony, what else are you thinking about here as we uh, as we come to the close of this uh, episode? You know, unfortunately, there's not much to think about, Ash, except, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I'm putting these three pieces together. We've got the election, obviously, in the foreground. We've got a big move in the VIX that just started yesterday with people expecting that going into the election. And unfortunately, we've also got a double top for the bears to lean on, you know, if they want to start letting go of some technology and some of the sectors that have been performing really well all year maybe lightening them up ahead of the election. But I'm starting to come around to the fact that while I do still think that there's a peaceful retention of power next week, that in the chance that Biden wins, just given what he has stated, and I'm talk, trying to talk about his policy statements, I think that there's a lot more volatility. And I think the premise of Kamala Harris potentially being in the White House offers even more volatility. So that's a scenario that I would say could bring volatility, but I think it's a diminishing probability one, if that's fair to call it. Yeah. Tony, I just hope we have an outcome uh, the next time we have you back on. 
we're going to have an outcome. Don't you worry. I have faith in this country and in the process and that um, the adults are still in charge at some level. Tony, very well said. I can't improve on that. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Ash. Thank you very much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.